Good morning, church. My name is Colton, and I'll be reading our passage this morning. If you would turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Uh, it's on page 520 of your pew Bible. It'll be on the screen as well. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 will be in there from verses 8 through chapter 6, verse 6. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away with his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he, he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness and anger." Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all of the toil with which one toils under the sun in the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is a gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all the days of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and in darkness and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun nor known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. Church, this is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. All right, so about four weeks ago, uh, we launched uh, fundraising here at our church for our church plant, Midtown Community Church. And um, we, we have a goal overall of raising uh, $500,000 to see this church get launched and get started, and through um, the efforts of uh, private fundraising, both in our church and outside of it, we were able to raise um, $300,000 before we came to the church at large to ask for money. 
And so we are in the middle of a fundraising campaign right now. And by way of update, um, we have, since we launched four weeks ago, have had $80,000 pledged towards Midtown Community Church, which meets our matching goal of $50,000. So we are at about 430 of our $500,000 goal. Praise be to God for that. Um, now, uh, we have four more weeks of our, our fundraising uh, here together. So if you have not turned in um, a pledge card or made a pledge, what we would ask for you to do is to take the pledge cards that you've been given and to take those, and if you haven't already, put them on your fridge or somewhere in your, in your house that's noticeable and think and pray about how God might be directing you to give. And then please fill that out and drop it in the offering boxes sometime between now and Sunday, April 30th. That's whenever we're asking for you all to have those pledges in for. Um, and, uh, and I just want to, again, thank you for those of you who have given already. And just, it has been an amazing experience just to be like knocked over by a tidal wave of generosity. Honestly, that's what it has felt like as we've been moving forward into this planting process. Um, also, while we're here, just a quick fun update. We got, we signed the lease and got the keys for our church building yesterday. Um, so this picture right here, yeah. So this picture yesterday um, was taken, we, uh, we went over as a family last night after dinner and hung out there and honestly, uh, our kids were being a little crazy, so we need to get out of the house anyway. And, uh, and so, um, and then the next slide, just my daughter has already claimed her official seat in the church. So um, there's Piper. She's got her, her throne or whatever that is uh, already claimed. But, but we're, we're incredibly gracious or grateful for God's grace in giving us this building. And uh, so this month, we're going to start having our core team meetings in there and uh, start um, start to try to get that place ready for worship services, which our preview services are going to start in September. So the Lord is at work in so many ways, and uh, we have nothing else to do right now except to pray and, and thank him for that. So would you, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for uh, the ways in which you, as David was saying earlier in our liturgy, thank you for the ways that you are generous to us beyond what we could ever ask or think. Generosity is in your very essence and being as God, and we thank you that we get to experience that in the planting of this church, and um, Father, thank you for this church body and the people in it, the ways that you have given your gifts to this people, and God, I pray that you would direct our hearts as we come to your word to talk about money and the gift that you give us in money. Lord, I pray that you would um, speak to us through your word, that you would Free us from the love of money so that we might be freed up to use money in wise ways for your kingdom and glory. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we come to talk about money, uh, it has been quite a few weeks in the world of finance. Um, if you are somebody who is tuned in even remotely to the news and what's going on in the world of finance in the last few weeks, Silicon Valley Bank and then several other banks have been teetering on the blink of, brink of collapse, um, and uh, a financial scare like that gets everybody's eyes opened a little bit. 
Uh, I was talking with uh, a member of our church who's a banker this past week, and uh, he likened it, if you know nothing of what's going on, because I only know like very minimal, um, he likened it to that scene in It's a Wonderful Life where the, everybody comes to the bank at once with their note and says, hey, we want money out now. And the bank's like, sorry, we don't have it. We have it loaned out. Um, that's kind of what's been happening in the financial world over the past few weeks. And, and these types of things happen periodically. And these events are, are, are a reminder to us of the inherent instability of money. And these events lead us to ask the question this morning, is there actually a way to live in this world so that our hopes and happiness don't fluctuate on the basis of the rise and fall of financial markets? Like, is there a wise way for us to posture our hearts in the world so that we don't place our trust in a house of cards that is wealth? Well, in his providence, God has us in Ecclesiastes 5 this morning for a reminder about this. And in this passage, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, if this isn't too forceful of an image, seeks to to kind of grab us by the shoulders and shake free all of the faulty reasons for trusting in money that don't actually hold up under scrutiny so that we admit that trusting in money is a silly thing to do. That's what he does in this passage this morning. And only when we see that, when we see the inherent instability, the the poverty that is seeking satisfaction in wealth, can we begin to enjoy God and the wealth that he gives. So as we look at this passage this morning, um, three points to help us look at it. First, we're going to look at the principle of wealth, and then second, the poverty of wealth, and lastly, the proper place of wealth. The principle of wealth, the poverty of wealth, and the proper place of wealth. So in verse 10, the preacher gives us his basic principle for how we ought to approach wealth. If you would, look with me there at verse 10. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Now you may remember, uh, if you've been with us in our series on Ecclesiastes up to this point, that word that's translated vanity there in verse 10 is the Hebrew word hevel. And that word in Hebrew literally means smoke. And the author of Ecclesiastes uses that word as a multifaceted metaphor throughout the book. And oftentimes, if you're reading in your English Bible, um, it doesn't do so here, but oftentimes it'll be like these reminders throughout the book. They'll put a little footnote on it, on the word vanity, that says, hey, this is the word that means smoke. Now, living in the city of Harrisburg, I love going out in the early mornings along the river. It's one of the best things. And especially when it's a foggy morning on the Susquehanna River. Those are some of my favorite warm, foggy mornings, either on a walk or on a run. But as the light of morning breaks, that fog almost always dissipates. One moment it's there, and the next it's gone. Poof, just like that. And that's precisely 
the way that the preacher uses this metaphor here when talking about money. That's what it means when it says that it's vanity. No matter how much we make, no matter how great of a raise we get, no matter how, uh, how much stockpiles in our retirement accounts, no matter what our investment portfolios look like, money cannot satisfy because money does not last. Money is smoke. It is fleeting. Wealth, no matter how secure it might seem, will not satisfy us because it is as fleeting as morning fog on the Susquehanna River. And when we seek ultimate satisfaction in money, we will be devastated. To say it another way, to use money terms, when we seek our ultimate satisfaction in wealth, it results in a poverty of life. It results in hearts that are as volatile as the financial markets themselves. So, that's it. That's the principle. Simple enough. If we seek satisfaction in money, we will never be satisfied. Now, second point, the poverty of wealth. So now, the preacher, after giving us this principle, then spends the rest of the text, almost the entirety of the rest of our text this morning, essentially laying out three main reasons why money will not ultimately satisfy us. Three reasons why it is foolish for us to place the ultimate freight of our lives onto money. And the preacher here is not going to pull any punches. He's going to take our, our eyes and fix them on reality, and he will not let us look away until we acknowledge that it is foolish to view money in this way. And he frames these three different illustrations with the three phrases, or with the phrase, grievous evil, used three times. So if you see in the text, in verse 13, he says there's a grievous evil. In verse 16, he says this is a grievous evil. And then down in chapter 6, verse 2, it says it is a grievous evil. So these are our three kind of illustrations from life the preacher gives us to show us this principle. So let's look at these three in turn and the lessons that they teach us. So first, the first reason, the first illustration is that wealth is inherently flimsy. Let's read verses 13 through 15 again there. He says, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Now, when we read that, those verses, I think there's two ways that we can naturally read that phrase, bad venture. So we can think of a bad venture as like, a weekend at Atlantic City that goes haywire, right? That's one way to see a bad venture, a, a, a venture where there was a foolish use of money to begin with. That's one way to read that, that phrase. But I don't think that's what the preacher of Ecclesiastes has in mind. I think he has in mind here, and that usage of that word tips us off to this, it's a wise investment, a good venture, that takes an unseen turn for the worst. This speaks to the person who plans well for retirement, 
Uh, to the husband and wife who save for their kids' future. Uh, this isn't playing slots in Texas Hold'em. <laughs> this is wise financial planning with a stock market crash, where good investments and wise planning on the part of everyday people get upended overnight. And the preacher here is intentionally giving us a different perspective from the book of Proverbs. So if you remember from Benjamin's introductory sermon to the book of Ecclesiastes, he mentioned that this book stands at parts in tension with the book of Proverbs, and those books together give us a whole perspective on wisdom. And so if all we had were the book of Proverbs and what it says about money, we could be tempted to think that if we're simply wise with our money and save and invest it properly with good planning, that we'll be secure. That, that, that good things will just flow to us in our life from that diligence and good planning. But the preacher here of Ecclesiastes comes to us with a helpful counterbalance to say, yes, oftentimes that is the case. But what happens when things go bad that you have no control of whatsoever? What happens when you follow the best of all of Dave Ramsey's financial advice and your money still evaporates? Well, one example of what happens is in 2008 when the financial markets crumbled and there were men hurling themselves off of buildings because of all the wise investments that they lost. That's one thing that happens. The preacher is pressing us to the limit to say, when the worst thing happens to your money that could possibly happen, your worst fears come true, how will you respond? When you don't get the promotion, when you don't get accepted into the college you thought would set you up for lifelong security and success, when you face unforeseen tragedies that drain your financial resources, when the banks and markets do fail, how will you respond? In our culture, we so often moralize wealth and poverty. It's kind of baked into us as Americans that, that wealth is, is inherently good and a sign of diligence and poverty is inherently bad and a sign of moral laxity. But instead, what truly reveals our character is how we respond when our financial security is threatened and crumbles. So, that's the first illustration. Wealth is inherently flimsy. The second reason why we should not seek satisfaction in wealth, the second illustration the preacher gives here, is that death couldn't care less about your wealth. <laughs> Look with me at verses 16 and 17. He says, this also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Well, says the preacher, if none of that bad stuff happens, you keep your financial security, you retire comfortably, you go to the grave in absolute security and comfort, you still go to the grave you're still going to die. You can achieve 
satisfaction in financial security and success, in other words, as the preacher says in verse 16, about as effectively as any of us could stand on top of Blue Mountain on a windy day and grasp the breeze in our hands and hold it. As soon as you get it, it's gone. Everything you own, all of your possessions, all of the things you value most in life will eventually rot and decompose and cease to exist. Your cars, your golf clubs, your family heirlooms, your wedding rings, your clothes, your homes, and everything else actively trend towards entropy and decay until they're gone. And verse 17 pushes it even farther than that. Because he says the person who seeks satisfaction in money, no matter how much wealth they accumulate, will one day die, and even now, their life is a sort of death. Do you see that? Although they have the world, that they sit alone and sad at their dinner tables, depressed and angry. I couldn't help but think here of Jesus' parable of the rich young ruler. Or it's not a parable, it's a story where he meets the rich young ruler. And the, the, the rich com- young ruler comes to Jesus and Jesus says to him that you can, you, you've, you've kept all the commandments, now go sell everything that you have and come follow me. And the man goes away sad because he, his heart is bent on seeking satisfaction in his wealth. Now think about this. What would his dinner table have looked like that night? What would it have looked like to go and be a fly on the wall in that man's home at dinner that night? He has it all. Probably has a feast laid out before him. And yet he sits there sad because he realizes money and wealth and possessions have such a grip on me that I can't give them up. And this is what I'm left with. Here I am. How does your heart react to hearing this? Are you sad because you see the emptiness in your pursuit of wealth and yet you feel enslaved by it like you can't get out? Seeking satisfaction in wealth only leads to a sort of death in the present, a a poverty of life that we experience even now. So, The second reason the preacher gives, death doesn't care about your wealth. Now lastly, the third reason, wealth doesn't necessarily come with enjoyment. So here the question is asked by the preacher, okay, so what what if things are as good as they can be, right? These are the questions we all ask ourselves, right? What if I'm the wealthiest person in every room I walk into? (laughs) All really relatable questions for us. (laughs) But he's pressing it to the extreme here. What if you have everything all of the time? You're that wealthy. Let's keep reading. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. There's that Hevel smoke word again. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. 
If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. The final grievous evil that happens under the sun is not being able to enjoy the wealth that we do have. Now, many things for, for all, all of us in this room who are normal people, <laughs> who are not the guy that walks into the room and always is the most wealthiest person in the room, many things can steal our ability to enjoy the wealth we have in our lives, even if we're not rich. So think about it, like disease or, or a difficult family situation or, or crippling mental health challenges. Or as it says in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, uh, like oppression and injustice. And many more different things like these can take away our enjoyment of what wealth we do have. There are things that can come and steal our enjoyment of wealth away from us. And so for many of us, for whom all these multiple factors are present in our lives that cripple our ability to enjoy wealth to the fullest, like we're reminded often that money can't satisfy, right? But he's saying here, and I think this is the thrust of these verses in chapter 6, one thing that is guaranteed to keep us from enjoying the things that we have is an endless pursuit of acquiring more things. These verses caution the person so consumed by the pursuit of wealth that they fail to enjoy the things that they actually have in real life. So the man depicted in these verses has wealth and honor and respect. He has a hundred children. He lives a long life. Uh, To put all of that in, in modern day categories of wealth and respect, the man had homes in Malibu and Spain and the Bahamas He was a well-respected world leader. He was a CrossFit champion, and he drove a fleet of sports cars. (laughs) That's who this man is. He has it all. And yet, in his pursuit of wealth, he doesn't enjoy any of the wealth that he actually has. His wealth only, to him, is more of a problem, more of a need to accumulate more and more. In the words of the modern-day preacher, Biggie Smalls, more money, more problems. (laughs) Now, I'm sure that none of us missed the intensity of the language here in chapter 6. He compares living as a wealthy person without enjoyment of that wealth to a stillborn child. That's a bit much. We might say, uh, that's a lot. And that's the point. You see, again, the preacher is taking us by the shoulders and shaking us with this shocking language so that we will wake up from our slumber of trying to find our life's pursuits in wealth. So many of us in our incredibly wealthy world do nothing except constantly worry about how we can attain more financial security. Right? That's how so many of our lives are spent, day in and day out. And we often think about our own wealth in terms of like how we can always be improving it, and we don't enjoy what we actually have. We look at our homes this way. 
right? So like we, we spend hours agonizing over like what kind of flooring to pick and put in our house that's going to make it look nicer. And then we never actually sit on that flooring and play with our kids. We spend so much time worrying about what patio furniture is going to fit in our backyard. And we never actually sit there and have a cookout and invite our friends over and enjoy what we have. Because it's on to the next thing in our endless pursuit And this pursuit has more than one motivation. It's not just raw materialism that causes a lot of us to endlessly pursue more wealth. For so many of us, it's fear. It's the pursuit of security that causes us to do that. It's the fearful father who is so worried about making money for his family's future that he doesn't actually enjoy the family that he has. So wealth doesn't come necessarily with enjoyment. So I think we maybe have beat the dead horse. (laughs) I hope by now you're convinced that pursuing wealth as a means to ultimate satisfaction is an unwise way to live. But what does wisdom look like in our approach to wealth and money? How do we live as Christians in a wise way with what we have? Well, that's where the preacher gives us this little ray of sunshine in the middle of this passage here in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. And here he gives us our final point, the proper place of wealth. Here he gives us part of the whole perspective of what it looks like to live wisely with our wealth and possessions. Would you read chapter 5, verses 18 through 20 with me? He says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You see, if all the other verses of this text are talking about money under the sun, these three verses lift our eyes above the sun to give us a perspective on wealth. Part of what it means to wisely use our wealth as Christians is to enjoy what God has given. Now, notice, just as a caveat before we get into this, notice this does not equate to the perspective of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's not what he's saying here. Rather, a wise person enjoys the wealth that God has given as an act of submission and humility to living in a world where we have a generous creator and one who gives us so many good things to enjoy. And this probably isn't what we would expect to hear in a Christian sermon on money, at least not as the major note of emphasis, right? Like, in Christian circles, I think we tend to have a particular misconception about wealth and possessions that says that wealth and possessions have three purposes, primarily. They exist to save for the future, to pay for our current necessities, and to give away. And I think that's not wrong. 
Those three points are not wrong, but I do think that is an incomplete perspective. And Ecclesiastes, I think, completes that for us. God gives some form of wealth to many of us. And verses 18 and 19 call what God has given to us our lot, our portion in life, what God has assigned to us. You see, wisdom with regard to our wealth isn't hoarding it, but it's also not anxiously and guiltily trying to get rid of it as, pa- as fast as we possibly can either, or throw it in a 401k for our kids or something. <laughs> part of using our money wisely, part of stewardship as Christians is, is enjoying the things that God has given us. And I think we see this perspective summarized and, and come, coming under Jesus' words that Pastor David read for us earlier in our liturgy in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Our Lord Jesus there in Matthew 6, 33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Rather than seeking our satisfaction in money, Jesus encourages us here to aim our whole lives, hearts, and checkbooks at the kingdom of God. And that category of the kingdom of God as an ultimate pursuit encapsulates both sacrificial generosity with our money and humble enjoyment of what God has given. In other words, you can seek the kingdom of God in both your fasting and your feasting. And the great part about this is Jesus doesn't just tell us this, but he shows us what this looks like in a human life. This, this occurred to me this week for the first time ever. Like Jesus was simul- simultaneously called a, drun- a drunk and a glutton, and he was homeless. What? <laughs> like, what do you make of that? And so many of Jesus' choices in life, the way that the fullness of God dwelling bodily chose to use his time and money on earth, we would look at and say, that's wasteful. Like, that's foolish. He spent his time eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus enjoyed what the Father gave him on earth, used it for the benefit of others, and yet he was also willing to give away everything that he had including his own life, to secure this kingdom of God for any who would come to him. He was willing to give away even his own life so that this kingdom could be secured. And you see, this is where we come to the promise in that command. And and I think we so quickly read over that in Matthew 6, that the, the the command to seek the kingdom of God in Matthew 6 comes with a promise attached to it. And the promise reframes the way that we seek that command. What does it say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and what? All these things will be added to you. That's a promise. In the context of Matthew 6, those things that are added to us in life are the things that give us security in life. The things that we would be tempted to be anxious about and worry about. In other words, 
we seek God's kingdom with our whole lives, not from a place of poverty, but from a place of wealth at the outset. If we seek the kingdom of God, we have the promise of wealth from the very beginning. Or to put it in the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, this is what he says about what God promises to those who trust in Christ. This is Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is the promise of what the eternal wealth of heaven for us. He is the down payment on the full wealth of heaven that is actually ours. He brings the wealth of heaven to us in the present. And because we have this wealth, we can be freed from having our hearts rise and fall on the basis of financial markets. We can be freed to actually enjoy the things of God for what they are, the gifts of God for what they are, instead of idolizing them and seeking satisfaction in them. We can be freed to seek first the kingdom of God because all the wealth and security that we could ever want is promised to us with a down payment of God himself and will be added to us in the future. And so church, let me give you one practical application based on this as we close. Find some time this week to enjoy what God has given you. Simple as that. Pray prayers of gratitude. Actually sit and reflect on what God has given to you in your life and give him praise for giving you way more than you deserve. And then, like, actually do that. Like, plan a party that will be a blast and a blessing to other people. Get together with your families and plan a party. Or go on a date with your spouse. Or take your kids out for ice cream and talk together as a family about all the ways that God has blessed you beyond what you deserve. And we can live like this this week, church, because we know the fullness of the riches of heaven belong to us. And so we can use our wealth wisely by seeking God's kingdom in whatever way he is given, starting with enjoying what he has given. And whether you eat or drink or whatever else you do, use all of your wealth for the glory of God. Will you pray with me? I'll invite the band back up. Father, thank you for the good things that you give to us. We thank you that you have given us the greatest gift, the promise of your Holy Spirit who gives us a guarantee of the inheritance of heaven. I thank you that that is ours now. And I thank you that that means that we don't have to live our lives from a place of poverty, but we can live from a place of wealth in you that frees us from seeking satisfaction in the things of this earth and looks to you. And Father, help us this week 
to humbly receive all that you have given us. Help us to acknowledge in all of the little intricacies of our lives, no matter how wealthy or how impoverished we are materially, to recognize the ways that you are good to us and to give you praise because you are a generous and good creator and giver. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.